Welcome to Said Contra, a podcast of the Sacra Doctrina Project. I am Father Dylan Schrader, and with me are Dr. Daniel Garland and Dr. Kevin Clark. Today we're addressing the question, why can't Christ be a human person? So to get us started, Kevin, would you mind just giving us a definition of person? Well, yeah, the, the classic definition of person we get from Boethius, of course, which someone who is an individual subsistence of a rational nature, correct? Can I say that uh, just right? Yeah, so I, I think that's Aquinas's take on it there, um, an individual subsisting in a rational nature. There, Sometimes you hear individual substance of a rational nature. Yeah, I think Boethius, Boethius has substance, but Aquinas has more of the subsisting. That's his, his uh, contribution to the definition. Yeah, so it's tweaked a little bit. And a person is one of those terms, uh, too, that the church really helped develop in the way that we use it. Etymologically, of course, there's a whole history there in both Latin and in Greek. And there is some confusion over translations and how to express these ideas. In the early church, the word person as a technical term in theology became important both in the discussion of the Trinity and in the discussion of the Incarnation. So today we're focusing in a particular way on the incarnation, but there is a connection, a juncture between those two doctrines, because what we want to say is that the second person of the blessed Trinity took to himself a human nature and therefore is one person now subsisting in two natures, divine and human. But what we don't want to say is that Christ is two persons, a divine person and a human person. And what we're discussing and arguing for in this particular episode is also that we shouldn't say that he's a human person. We should say specifically that he's a divine person with a divine and human nature. So, Danny, when we talk about nature, what are we talking about there? Yeah, so nature, we're talking about primarily for, for Christology, the principle whereby a thing acts. So we say Christ has two natures. He has a divine nature, so he acts in a divine way through his divine nature, he has a human nature. So he does human things through his human nature, right? So this is, um, uh, right, we say Christ has theandric activity, right? God, man activity, because he has two natures. Um, so he can do, right, he can do uh, essentially human things like uh, weep, wonder, um you can do divine things like forgive sins and so forth. Very good. So when we talk about nature, sometimes we use that term in a broader sense to mean you know, the essence of a thing, the substance of a thing, uh, the characteristics of a thing. But you know, in a more proper technical sense, it really does focus on operation or action. It's the source of action, the source of operations. So you talk about the theandric acts of Christ, mm. that is the divine human acts of Christ. Uh, so I think that kind of gets us into some of the important things we want to be able to affirm. A lot of the discussions in Christology and the development of terminology came about because of a desire to affirm and deny certain things. Mm -hmm. That is, we know from sacred scripture and tradition that certain things are true and certain things are false. So theology wants to give an account of why those things are true or why those things are false uh, and to understand them in the proper way. So for example, 
we want to say that Mary is the mother of God. So it's clear that we have to be able to say that. Now, there are some ways in which that statement could be taken, which would be obviously false. Mm -hmm. Mary is not the mother of the Trinity. She's not the mother of the Father or of the Holy Spirit. Uh, But she is the mother of the Son, um, who is God. So we call her the mother of God. We also want to say things like the fact that God suffered and died on the cross. Again, understand the, understood in the proper way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, both of those things are possible only because the son has a human nature. He can be conceived and be born only in his humanity, and he can suffer and die only in his humanity. But the person, the one who is doing these things is the son of God himself, is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. So theology's desire to have a coherent way of affirming and denying certain things is definitely in play here. So if we're proposing that we cannot say or should not say that Christ is a human person, I guess one thing I would say at the beginning is, well, what we're not denying or what we're we're not talking about is um, a person who happens to be human. So it certainly is true that Christ is a person and that he's human. But when we say human person, we mean something specific. We mean a being who's being a person is constituted by human nature. So for example, I'm a person because I am an, because I am an individual subsisting in human nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah like and to, so uh, go ahead, Kevin. I'd like to throw something in the mix here is that, um, you know, this question of whether Christ was a human person, uh, we shouldn't, uh, understate this significance of this theological problem. I mean, for us, many of our listeners, the question has a very obvious answer, right? Uh, But the fathers take very seriously the claim that he became like us in all things apart from sin, which is from uh, Hebrews 4.15, and which was quoted in the definition of, of the Council of Chalcedon. And so what you have here is you have two, um, two, two, I would say heretical poles, you know, on, on opposite ends of the spectrum. And so on the one end, you know, obviously you, you've got um, Nestorianism, which came later, but before that you had a heresy that was known as Apollinarianism. And Apollinarianism, uh, which came from Apollinarius of Laodicea, who was a, a, a strong opponent of, of Arius, <laughs> And uh, Apollinarius was, you know, he wanted to emphasize the divinity of the son. And so, but what he ended up doing was uh, denying that Christ had a human soul or human mind. And so there's an important doctrine that results from uh, from Apollinarius's error, it's called the Assumption Doctrine. And most people, when they hear Assumption, they think of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin. But here I'm talking about the Assumption Doctrine, in other words, what Christ assumed, and how Gregory, the theologian, points it, uh, 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 phrases it, is that the unassumed is unhealed. And so a, a lot of people who approach this question of whether Christ is a human person, they might say, well, if Christ was not a human person, then the human person is unhealed. I mean, we could take the assumption doctrine that way. If Christ is 
not a human person, then the human person is not healed. And so, um, so Gregory is sort of in the in in the golden mean between these these uh, two heresies of Nestorius, of course, asserting that there are two prosopa um, or two faces or persons of the sun, and Nestorius sort of having a um, impersonal shell of a humanity of Christ that's inhabited by the the logos. And um, so anyway, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get more in, in, into this a little bit later, but I just wanted to throw that out there that um, um, th that th this really is a, um, a significant matter that we only have uh, come to know the truth of through many centuries of, of painful debate and polemics and anathemas and whatnot. So um, yeah, and um, you know it's it's a very real question. At least it was in the early churches. You pointed out, Kevin, um, this question of who is Christ? Right? Is he is he a human person? Is he a divine person? Is he both? Is as Nestorius wants to say, is he both a human person and a divine person with a human nature and a divine nature? Right? Because one of the philosophical errors of um, Nestorius was wherever you have a nature, there's a corresponding person, right? So if he wants to affirm Christ has a human nature, well, for him, there's going to be a human person. If Christ has a human nature, there's going to be a, I'm uh, sorry, a divine nature, there's going to be a divine person. Now, the question for Nestorius, right, and for his critics was, what is the union there? Where, where do we have this uh, connection? How does God become man? And Right. Uh, Nestorius will say there's a dignity of union, right? A union of dignity. Um, and his critics say, well, that's not much of a union, right? That's not much uh, to hang your hat on there. In the opposite end, you have Eutyches, right? Eutyches reacting to Nestorius kind of falls into the same metaphysical philosophical error where there's one, where's, where there's a nature, there's a corresponding human person. So if he, doesn't want to say that there's two persons, which Nestorius says, there's only one person, well, then there has to be one nature. Well, if there's a competition between the divine and the human, the divine's always going to win, right? So before the uh, union, there's two natures, but after the union, Eutyche says, there's one, and that's, right, it's a tertium quid, it's, it's divine, though, uh, essentially. Um, yeah, so you can see how this progresses yeah. historically. This this uh, this approach to the difficulty of this this question, and it, it only continues on in uh, after Eutyches with Severus of Antioch, and um, and then the uh, you you have the uh, Dianergus and the or I mean Monenergus and mm. the Monothelites who basically repeat the same problem of this. This sort of a tertium quid or third thing, like you mentioned, and um, during this uh, this time, especially in the sixth century with Leontius of Byzantium, and in the seventh century with Maximus the Confessor, you have the the emphasis upon what um, what Leontius and, and Maximus call inhupastatos, you know, or the hypostatic, and so. Uh, 
so even though uh, Christ is not a human person, still his humanity is hypostatic. It, it, there is um, um, the, the union, right? The hypostatic union, um, you have the divine person inhabiting the, the nature and completely um, assuming the nature to himself. So anyway, and, and, and Maximus uh, gets into this in, in his uh, Apuscula, especially uh, 14 and 23, which I've, I've had the privilege of working with a good bit. But, um, but, but he, he very much wants to deny that, that there's, um, there, there's nothing unhypostatos or, or unhypostatic, right, about Christ's human nature. So it can't be like Apollinaris wants to make of it as a as a a kind of a person a personless shell so anyone who may be like a little bit allergic to the to the uh traditional approach to this question um that um you know i i think i remember seeing a um a lecture online by uh an evangelical uh saying oh, look people say that christ is not a human person therefore you know we can't be trinitarians at all um you know there, there's no there's no reason to be um allergic to to uh this doctrine because the the per the the um the, the sense in which christ is a person a divine person and at the same time still fully human still preserves the assumption doctrine mm. and and therefore we are indeed completely redeemed, completely sanctified and saved and, uh, and, and given over for ultimately theosis or deification. I think that's absolutely essential. Yeah, so we always have to remember what is at stake and what is at stake is the fundamental claim that the word became flesh. God became human. So if God becomes human and ceases to be God, you, you don't really have God becoming human. Exactly. You know, you've got God changing into a human being or something. Uh, conversely, if God becomes human and the humanity is lost, you don't, you don't have the word made flesh. You don't have God with us. So God has to remain what he is and begin to be what he is not. And so how is that possible? Um, just I think we've alluded to it already, but in the historical development of this, a key moment is the Council of Chalcedon. Mm. So how would we summarize Chalcedon's formulation or, or contribution to the way we should use terms like person and nature when talking about Christ? Yeah, so the, the Chalcedon um, kind of revolution, it really was a revolution um, for, for good. It really clarified what what we mean when we talk about one and two in Christ, right? Uh, we're talking about oneness. We're talking about his hypostasis, right? His person. When we talk about duality in Christ, we're referring to nature, right? So the hypostatic uh, union comes from Chalcedon. Christ is one divine person in one fully divine nature and one fully human nature, right? Without confusion, change, division, or separation, right? the Chalcedonian synthesis says. So it's, it's very important that you get that, right? That there is a real union here and the union is going to be in the person, 
right? Not in the nature, because if it's in the nature, you fall into Eudochian monophysite uh, conception of Christ. Um, so, right, Chalcedon is clear, without confusion, right? Without division, it's, there is a union there, without separation, without change, right? Uh, as you said, as you point out, the word becomes flesh. He doesn't change into something. He takes something on. Right. And um, talking about the development here uh, that Kevin pointed out, by the time we get to Aquinas, Aquinas looks at this, right? He's, he's drawing from all that has gone before the wisdom of the fathers. When he's at Orvieto, he has access to these, these councils of Ephesus, uh, Chalcedon, the, the quintessential Greek councils there. And you, you building off of Damascene and so forth, right? Aquinas says, you know, this, this notion that wherever there's the nature, there's a person. He says, yes, for every mere human nature, there is a corresponding human person, as you pointed out, right? What does it mean to be a human person, right? A human person is constituted by a human nature. But when the word becomes flesh, right? The divine person, the second person, the Trinity, who has a divine nature from all eternity, he takes to himself a human nature. And the word, right, that, that human nature is not a mere human nature. It's a human nature that is enlivened, that's quickened by the logos, right? So it doesn't need a corresponding human nature, Right. Um, Garagou Lagrange, when he comments on this, he talks about the ecstasy of being, right? The word, right, draws in the human nature in this ecstasy of being um, so that you don't need a human person there, right? The, the second person of the Trinity suffices. One of the uh, very beautiful uh, meditations upon the Chalcedonian logic, I think, is found in Aquinas in his Tertia Pars. I think it's question 46 when he's reflecting upon Holy Saturday, you know, and uh, everyone likes to follow uh, Balthazar into, into Sheol on, on Holy Saturday. Uh, but I think what's really interesting about Aquinas's reflection is that he takes Chalcedon to its um, to, to its end. I think he's following da Damascene on that. I seem to recall seeing this in Damascene as well, where without uh, without separate, without division, you know, there's no end to this hypostatic union. So that means that the eternal son is both in Sheol and in the tomb because he's fully united to the humanity of Christ. So in a way, Christ in enduring his, his passion and death endures it in in a way that's uh, that's just like what human beings do in the separation of body and soul but also in a higher way in that he does what we fear the most which i think is to be buried alive and and he goes into the tomb uh, uh, hypostatically united to the body and hypostatically united to the soul he goes into shale so and what 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 this reflection made very real for me when I read it for the first time was, you know, wow, there really is no end to the incarnation. Nothing can sunder it. It, it, it is so efficacious that not even the most, um, most shameful death in the history of humanity could sunder the union of divinity and humanity. 
yeah, that's that really is beautiful when you think about that. That yeah, you know, Christ really dies; his body and soul really separate, but neither is separated from his divine person. You know, uh, it is something of a controversial point whether a human person is destroyed at death or not. But in the case of Christ, at least from a Thomistic perspective, we know the person is not destroyed. So even though the body and soul are separated, so Christ dies and Aquinas even says he ceases to be a man in the sense that a man is, you know, a a living body body or a composite of body and soul. So for that period of time, he ceases to be a man, but he doesn't cease to be a person. And I, you know, that's, that's a way of overcoming death. Death isn't able to accomplish what it normally does. And not only because Christ comes back to life, but also because his body remains united to his person, even in death. So death can't destroy him in the way that it tries to destroy the rest of us, but he does experience a real death. There's some beautiful soteriological implications to that. Now, just so as long as we're talking about Aquinas, you know, one thing I would like to put out there in this discussion is when we talk about uh, nature in Christ, I think it's important to keep in mind that we're using the word nature uh, by analogy. So it, it can be very easy to think, okay, we got one person, we have two natures, we have one and two, but the divine nature and the human nature are both nature in a true sense, but they're not nature in exactly the same sense. Exactly. Which is yeah. also why the hypostatic union is possible. Yeah. So, so Father, what would be wrong with saying, right, besides all the heretical history that we talked about? Besides so what, that. Besides all that, you know, why can't Christ be a human person? What, what are the implications? What, what, what are the consequences, right? If somebody wanted to argue, well, yeah, when Christ uh, becomes incarnate, right, he, he, uh, leaves right his his divine nature transforms into a human nature um and so he's a human nature maybe they might say well he's a human nature or sorry a human person divine person transforms into a human person he still has a divine nature and a human nature but he's a human person instead of a divine person what what would be the consequences of that well i guess i could ask some follow-up questions if we're saying that Christ ceases to be a divine person and begins to be a human person. That's one situation. Or does he begin to be a divine person and a human person? So which, which of those two cases are we talking about? Well, well, you know, if, if, if it's the latter, then we have Nestorianism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's the former, which some people want to argue um, it's out there. Um, so I, I would, I would point to the former one. Right. What well, there's far-reaching consequences for that. Well, there are consequences. Well, for one thing, it's impossible. So, <laughs> for a divine person to cease to be a divine person, uh, not going to happen. Not possible. But for another thing, it would mean simply that Christ is not God with us. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you you'd have you destroy the Trinity too, right? This is why um, the the church fathers are clear this this union doesn't take place in the natures right the the divine nature which is fully uh possessed by the three divine persons if there is a union there 
then that affects the other two persons who fully possess that divine nature, right? So the union is in the person. So if we say that a divine person changes, if the second divine person changes into a human person, well, we no longer have a trinity. Yeah. Right. And I think, I think you just highlighted something very important that we really haven't explained yet, which is the, in the Trinity, the divine nature is numerically one, numerically the same for the three divine persons. So whereas we might say the three of us all have human nature, we have three numerically individual human natures. In the Trinity, that's not the case. In the Trinity, the three divine persons are really distinct from one another but each really is identical with the one single divine nature. They don't have three individualized divine natures. So it's a very important point that you say, well, the, the union, the hypostatic union has to be hypostatic. It can't be physical or a natural union. If we're going to use that, that word, because right, that would even, implicate the father and the Holy spirit and the incarnation. We, 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 we can use the, the language of, of participation when it comes to uh, human persons participating in human nature, because obviously there was humanity long before there was any of us or even podcasts altogether. But the uh, you wouldn't speak of the divine nature as participated by the persons of the Trinity. The, the each are, are the nature, right? They're, the essence and the existence are, are, are uh, radically united in, in a way altogether different from human nature. And and in a mysterious and ineffable way. But, you know, uh, what we were talking about earlier with regard to the, the tertium quid theory is that, and this is a point that Maximus makes really well in, in um, I think, uh, both the dispute with Pyrrhus and also in the Apuscala, that if you make a third thing out of Christ, then you make a fourth thing in the Trinity. And the Trinity then becomes a quaternity and the whole uh, theology and economy collapses and nothing makes sense anymore. Um, And we're not saved at all because Christ is neither God nor man if he's mixed. I think that's really interesting because there are contemporary folks, uh, theologians even, who want to say, that God saves us you know, by giving up his divinity in some way, or at least by lessening its impact or whatever it is, that God becomes one of us in the, in the sense of ceasing to be what he was and well, that's saves not what us. Paul meant by kenosis. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it's this, this, it's this, this kind of, yeah, I would agree, departure from canonic mm. theology mm. because yeah, from the traditional perspective, uh, God, w- it wouldn't be God saving us then. It would be s- something that used to be God saving us, but the one who would be saving us saved. would no longer be God. So, you know, you lose the, you lose the theandric act. Hmm. It's got to be God, you know, the, 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 and that, that's, that's why Chalcedon's formulation is so important. Uh, simple in one sense, not simple to get there and not simple to really articulate the full vision, but to say you have the person who is doing these things, the person who is offering his human life for the salvation of the world is God, is the son of God. Yes, exactly. And, you know, it has to be in scripture points to this too, right? So um, 
I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up Aquinas's commentary on John. Um, Aquinas, in in talking about the Word became flesh, right? He he goes through the different. We talked about this last time, Father, when we talking about Aquinas as biblical theologian, right? He he goes in and shows that no, the way John has expressed this this truth of the incarnation, the Word has become flesh. The word was made flesh. Um, it has to be right. The hypostatic union, right. It, and, and he, in the course of this, of ruling out Nestorianism, Apollinarianism, Arianism, uh, monophysitism, he says, look, Christ has to be a divine person, right. This is biblically um, uh, necessitated. In John, when Christ says, I and the Father are one, right, he points to the reality, right? When Christ says, I, he's talking about his person, right? I and the Father are one. He says the oneness there, right? The You have two persons, I, the person of the, the word, and the Father are one because of the divine nature, right? Um, and elsewhere in John, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, right? Well, if he's a human person, he wasn't before Abraham, right? So the I there has to be the divine person. So scripture itself points to this necessity that Jesus is a divine person and not a human person. Right. So ex exactly. If he were a human person, then the subject of those statements, the subject of those predications, whether of being or of acting, would ultimately be that human person. It wouldn't be the divine it would person be blasphemy, at all. Right. As the Jews take it, the Jews see him as a human person. Right. Um, and so they hear him say, I and the father are one and they want to stone him for that. Right. Um, if he's not a divine person, then he has no basis for saying that. Yeah. And I think that just kind of gets us back to that same thing with, with the definitions that you have a person as a subject or supposedly to them, it's the one who acts or the one who is the nature is the basis for the action or the basis for the operation. So the divine person can act on the basis of, or out of his human nature. So there are things that he does that a divine person acting through a divine nature by himself, by itself, would not be able to do, such as, you know, to suffer, to die, or to eat, to drink, and so forth. Uh, but the per, but the one of whom all those things are predicated is the very same divine person. Yeah, we've used the the word deandric a couple of times here, and uh, I just want to uh, turn briefly to that because it comes from Dionysius the Areopagite, the uh, um, the, the the monk of the the sixth centuries, obviously post Chalcedonian, but the the author. Wait, wait, he wasn't he wasn't from the first century. Does well, you know, he was no. the the mystical associate of Paul, <laughs> and the monastic author uh, writes in his voice. You know, so he's he, he's not meaning uh, meaning to plagiarize anything. Or are you saying he's pseudo Dionysius? <laughs> I refuse to call him pseudo, but um, you know because I. It's a, it's as though Dionysius speaks in him, right? You know, and that's what uh, that's what our author wants wants us to know. But there's anyway, there's a, a letter that he writes to a monk named uh, Gaius, and he says that there is a 
uh, a certain new uh, theandric energy and or uh, theandrike energia and this became a very controversial quote uh, in the in the sixth century when uh, Severus and then, and then others after him took it to mean that the human and divine operations were as it were mixed and so then there was just one activity and what was that one activity it was theandric which comes from theos or god and anair which means man so a, a god man activity and and so um what again to bring up Mac, bring maximus into this what maximus points out is and, and then uh, damascene after him is that no no what um what Dionysius, Dionysius doesn't say one theandric energy, but a certain new or a kind of a new theandric energy or operation. And what this means then is that now when you have the union, you have the two acting as one, but still preserving their distinctiveness, right? So, uh, so for example, the walking on the water. Christ walks upon the water in a human way, with human locomotion, with, with the movement of feet, but he passes lightly over it as though, uh, as a god would. Um, likewise, with the, uh, in, this becomes useful in the debate about the wills, right, when Christ would have passed by unnoticed, but they happen to notice him. Well, obviously, and so they, they he exegetes this very cleverly where, where um, you know, Obviously, if the divine will meant to pass by, then there's no way it could have been frustrated. So this is evidence of his human will at work here. So anyhow, when we say when we say theandric, I mean you, you, there, there is a, a tradition of understanding a certain kind of a mixture of divine and human activity, but still while also preserving the distinction. That's why there's so many scholarly works out there on St. Maximus that talk about union and distinction. At one point in the Tertia Pars, when St. Thomas is talking about the nature of the hypostatic union, they're the union in the person. I think to kind of explore what you're talking about, Kevin, he, he raises all these counterfactuals. Could multiple divine persons assume the same human nature numerically. And, and he thinks, yes. I mean, he thinks many of these things are possible. And, you know, you might wonder, well, why does he raise all these questions? And I would say it's because he wants to, first of all, clarify what the real hypostatic union is. And second of all, maybe to highlight the fact of non-competition or the fact that there is there, there's not an exclusion between the two natures and the divine person, or that the divine persons don't exclude one another or interfere with one another. And, and to me, clarifying that allows for a better understanding of the, of the real theandric acts of Christ, that one divine person acting through his humanity is a divine person doing human actions. So there is some kind of composition there, but it's not the kind of composition that we would find 
you know, in normal situations or in material substances or anything like that, where there would be competition, where there'd be interference. And that's why those acts can be theandric. They can be divine in one way and human in another way. And so you don't have two actions. You have one single action. Yeah, I think we still struggle with this idea uh, that there could be harmony between two distinct things in one Christ. So where you have the, the divine nature and human nature, uh, we we're kind of stuck in our modern way of thinking that competition is inherent in everything. And that, oh, well, if, if Christ had two wills or two activities, he'd constantly be fighting against himself. And I think that's one of the things that that that, that section in the Summa makes especially clear is, is that um, that there really is meant to be order and harmony between God and creation and, and, and that it's possible. And especially in Christ, who's not at all fallen, uh, that you would expect there to be the perfect divine human synergy uh, or, or um, you know, collaboration um, or co-working, so to speak, uh, there in, in the incarnation. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, I think for modern people, that, that is a struggle. And probably because our own personal experience is that our way of acting as human beings often or can be in some kind of friction with other, other people or with God. And it's hard to imagine, we can't, ima we, you know, we can't imagine having two wills or two intellects to begin with, but it's hard to imagine the, 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 the real, yeah, the vision of harmony, as you put it, the, um, the total subordination of humanity to divinity in the way that it's meant to be, or in, in, in really what is the highest example of humanity. Yeah, and I, I think, um, Kevin, as you point out there, Aquinas deals beautifully with that, uh, with when he's commenting on Christ in Gethsemane, that the wills aren't opposed to each other, right? The, the human uh, will is naturally repulsed by death, but who gave him that human will? It was the divine to begin with, right? So it, the human nature, which is created by the divine, by God, has, has made this nature such that it is naturally repulsed by death, right? Um, but you see the... the, the um, the fortitude of Christ's human nature, not as I will, but as you will, right? So there's that perfect harmony there between the divine and the human wills. So on the hypothetical, to go back to our discussion about Nestorius and, and that view, the hypothetical that you had in Christ two persons, a divine person and a human person, would we have harmony? Would we have conflict and if we have harmony, what, what unites those two? What accounts for the union of these two persons? What are they united in? And how is it different from, say, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, right? As Aquinas brings this out, right? There, the way Nestorius proposes it, it's, it's really no different than uh, the prophets who are uh, inspired and moved by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's a great point. So the, the, the hypostatic union has got to be 
in order to account for what we know from Revelation, this unique thing. It, it has to be something that is not just the same as the divine indwelling or as created grace uh, or as divine adoptive filiation or theosis. It's got to be this unique thing. And it's got to allow for predications that don't apply to the Father or the Holy Spirit. You know, we say the Son did things that the Father didn't do, uh, and so forth. So it pushes the it pushes the limits of our development of uh, vocabulary and ways of talking. But you know, we we looked a little bit at that in the history of the church to safeguard the truth of divine revelation. We've got to find ways of talking about these things. And so the Council of Chalcedon gave us. Um, a beautiful formula for doing that. And theologians have continued to develop that since then. And it, yeah, what's at the really same interesting, time, go ahead, Danny. Oh, I was going to say at the same time, it doesn't, um, even though we have this, this nice Chalcedonian definition, um, it doesn't do away with the mystery, right? We, we have, uh, right, Chalcedon, the fathers there are looking at uh, the scriptural revelation and they're formulating this, um, definition of who Christ is in reaction to the, the various heresies. Um, and, and so they say, all right, this is, this is who Christ is one divine hypothesis in a human nature and a divine nature, both of them fully, right. Fully human, fully divine, but it does, right. The, the fathers are, are sort of hesitant to go further to like, you know, they, they want to make sure that there is room for the mystery of the incarnation. Um, and I think that's important in theology that, you know, um, we, and, and I, I'm pretty sure Aquinas would agree with this, right? We, we can look at it, we can use the full height of reason purified by faith um, to help us to understand, but knowing full well that no matter how far we go, we will never exhaust the mystery of who Christ is. Right, and of the incarnation of the fact that God has become man. Yeah, that's key. And I, I think, you know, to just flesh out the Nestorian logic a little bit more um, is, is that it really is the same, uh, same kind of philosophical problem that you have with some of the early heresies like Docetism, where where you know Christ only seemed to become incarnate, or the, the logos only seemed to become incarnate, and so if you take Nestorianism, um, you have these two prosopa, then you start drifting toward excluding the divinity or or the the logos from the crucifixion, and and, and so you start separating uh, the. Um, the, the the very mystery of the economy of the of the sons coming into human nature and you know his his entire life in the flesh the suddenly the 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 weeping is merely human and suddenly the death is human and you know the miracles are only divine and you know and so it it ends up I think more radically separating divinity and humanity and doesn't give a truly robust account of the union that occurs. 
and just how much there really is a, um, a, a not just a contact, but a, um, you know, an indwelling of the divinity in human nature, such that no matter what happens to me, you know, even if my soul is lost, the soul, the the solitary boast of my nature would be that, you know, that it dwells, uh, the 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 eternal logos indwells humanity seated at the right hand of the father from from all eternity just so much dignity bestowed upon human nature by the the incarnation and i i think you just end up losing that with um when, when you start uh, separating uh the, the the two accounts there yeah when you try to sequester or protect mm. the divinity of god to the point where there can't be a union in the divine person you know the but also in these extreme canonic accounts where god gives up his divinity to become human that actually doesn't dignify humanity as much as if god remains what he is while being human yeah yeah if you're right if i don't want a god who gives up being god and becomes human he becomes one of us right like exactly us right because there's i know how i am as a human <laughs> you know i want a god who has become man who has taken my nature but remains god because then i know there's salvation there's hope for salvation whereas if he's just like one of us i i see what humanity is like right um we're not going to be saved by mere humanity right we're going to be saved by that human nature who's been taken up by the divine logos right who has united the human nature to his divinity right and then offers that human nature right in his divine person on the cross for our salvation exactly i think yeah i think this shapes our view of what divine mercy is you know, it, I mean, is mercy has got to be God seeing us in our misery and, so to speak, taking it to heart and, according to Christianity, rescuing us in a human way, saving mm-hmm. us in a human way, you know, uh, not just God suffering with us, you know, God mm-hmm. suffering with us in such a way that he can actually save us and redeem us. Uh, sometimes I think, you know, I don't know, we modern people, we almost, we almost don't want to be saved. We'd rather, we'd rather uh, have God share in our misery without saving us uh, than to have the, the other way around. But and the beautiful message of Christianity is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that uh, Christ is God with us. And he's, he's with us, but he's God with us and he's God, but he's God with us. So uh that would be an interesting podcast for another time. The question of does God suffer? Um, and uh, I mean, talk about a, a controversial issue, especially in the 20th century. Um, Amen. Yeah. Well, I think we should do a follow up because in, in my mind, in my mind, the question of or the fact that Christ cannot be a cannot be a human person is connected with God's immutability impassibility and with the divine simplicity. Uh, and I know some people would disagree on certain points of that. I mean, there are people 
who would hold to the Chalcedonian formula without any problem, who, you know, maybe would uh, challenge me on, on the necessary connection with the divine simplicity or things like that. But, you know, to my mind, the incarnation is possible because uh, the divine simplicity and therefore immutability and therefore impassibility uh, means that there's this non-competition between the human and divine natures. You know, if, if there were some risk of composition between God and something created, you couldn't have the incarnation. So I know some people would disagree with that. So maybe we should save that for a follow-up <laughs> episode where we look at some of those issues in more, in more detail. Yeah, we could really go down the, the rabbit hole here if we're not careful. It might be good. Uh, we're, it looks like we're about coming to the end of our time. So uh, this seems like a good place to, uh, to, to wrap it up. Well, I appreciate both, both of your uh, contributions. And you know, thank you for the, the dialogue today. Um, you know, the three of us are in agreement that Christ cannot be a human person, that he is a divine person with a divine and human nature. And uh, it sounds like we have some good topics for future podcast episodes. So I want to thank all of our listeners also for joining us. This has been Sed Contra, podcast of the Sacra Doctrina Project. And you can find us online at sacradoctrinaproject.org.